and welcome to another episode of the Faith in Action podcast, brought to you by Christian Yen Penn. I'm so excited to have you today, going over our winter retreat, uh, like your series with Nick Noah. But I am your host, Caleb Watt, here with my incredibly massive, muscular <laughs> friend and co-host, Tommy Kumpf. Tommy, how are you doing today? I'm doing good today, Caleb. How are you? Thank you for the uh, introduction. I'm doing great because you're here and we're listening to the talks by Nick Noah. Tommy, you want to you wanna introduce us to some of these topics that Nick is talking about? Yeah. So in this first talk, Nick is going over the gap between what Christians feel like we ought to be and what we are, what we desire and what we're actually living in. So in this first talk, he kind of tries to diagnose what this gap is. Yeah. And so in par- partially in doing that, he also takes the time to talk about some of the ways that we try to deal with this but incorrectly. And I think those were actually super interesting points to listen to because those are certainly patterns that I find myself falling into as well. Um, and then he closes by giving some practical advice on like, first by bringing up this whole theme that you'll see throughout the entire weekend of body practices, but then also some like more practical tips as well to work on this. Yeah, So yeah. And definitely in the later talks, it also elaborates way more. This first talk it's somewhat depressing because yeah. it's more about the problem than solutions, but yeah. it's still really good to get in the framework for the rest of his talks. Exactly. So we highly encourage you to listen to this very critically, to think about what he's saying because some of the arguments are a bit nuanced, um, but there's a lot to get out of listening to these talks several times. I've listened to these at least twice now, and I learned something new each time. Um, also, highly encourage you to listen to the rest of the talks as well. Because they really are a cohesive set of talks. Like this first one sets up for the next one, and that sets up for the third, and sets up for the fourth, etc. Um, so yeah, without further ado, Nick Nowak. It's uh, it's so great to be with you guys. Um, again, this is, I think, at least the third retreat I've done with you guys over the years, so it's great to be here, and uh, let's go ahead and dive in. I would love um, to not only be available to you guys one-on-one throughout the weekend, grab me at any point, um, if we have time, at least a few times after talks, to do some joint Q&A, as was mentioned before you jump into small groups. Um, I'm going to set this up by mentioning first what some of your student leaders wrote to me asking me to focus on, um, then connect that to some things that you'll just be doing. Um, as students this semester, in your Bible courses, in, are you guys Penn Faith in Action, Penn Christian Union? Penn Faith in Action? So hard. So, yeah, so hard for me to keep track of of the different names. Um, I've been working for Christian Union for 13 years. Um, I've been around a long time. I like to joke that this is still my first job as an adult. Um, it really is. This is the first job I got out of grad school, and I love what I do. Um, for a little less than 10 years, I worked with undergrads at Harvard. And in fact, there's Jackson, who's old. Is Andrew your oldest brother? His oldest brother is marrying this summer one of my favorite students ever from Harvard, Jessica Lee, um, who I baptized in the Charles River at Harvard her senior year in college. And so incredible to, to see all these connections. Now for three plus years, I've been working with graduate students at Columbia. So if you're ever in New York, and, and honestly, whether you come to New York as a grad student or if you just come to work after you're done, in col- done here at Penn, let me know if you're in the city. I hope to be in New York for a long time. Um, and again, would love to just interact as a group individually. Um, I- I'm hoping that this is really practical, that it's really eye-opening, that it's challenging and stimulating. But I certainly think that there'll be some things I mentioned this weekend that you'll want to either push back on me on or at least ask for clarification, kind of flesh it out. And so uh, so let's go ahead and jump in. If you want to turn to Romans 12, um, in general, we will be in Romans this weekend. One of the reasons is it's just a great text for well, we're, now, I'm not going to be working through Romans. It's not what I'm doing. But for the theme that we're going to be looking at, there's, there's kind of an overall theme for the weekend. Romans will be not exclusively, but primarily what we look at. 
Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is if you are a sophomore or a junior, you'll be studying the Book of Romans this semester. Um, another thing that will connect to what you're doing this semester is if you are a freshman, you will spend the first half of this semester kind of doing a study of spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading the Bible, stuff like that. And, and I want to lay some foundations that connect to that as well. Anyway, just to get started, then I'll pray, then we'll jump in. Um, in November, I got this email from some of your student leaders. Um, and, and here's a couple of the crucial lines that have stood out to me. Um, and the first was this, we want to, let me, is that, yeah, here it is. Okay. To, on our end, while these goals for the weekend are still being refined, this is a couple of months ago, they look something like this. We want you to, quote unquote, provide space and content that will help us establish routines and schedules that honor God in the upcoming semester. Then, in the next email, a little while later, after I asked for some clarifications, throw out some ideas, which I eventually scrapped after some great feedback from, from your leaders, there was this statement, which and feel free to let me know if I'm reading into it wrongly, but there was this clarification or, or kind of addition. As we've continued to discuss the, the retreat, we've come back to the idea that we want the weekend to offer students a chance to reflect on the mistakes that we feel like maybe we've made during the fall semester as a means to helping us learn lessons that we can carry into the spring. So I hear two things there. One is the like, man, like we're kind of not feeling as excited about how we're doing as maybe we wish we were. And two, routines and schedules are connected to that. Um, I've worked with students for long enough, undergrad and grad students. I've been alive long enough in my own life and, and in this culture that, that, that that's true. I think probably every single one of you feels like your daily and weekly routine gets the better of you more than you get the better of it, especially as a Christian. And so in some ways, this is uh, one of the big themes of the weekend, this sense of frustration in the Christian life. And so overall, um, in four talks this weekend, we're going to cover kind of three main topics that are all interconnected. The first is what I'm going to call the gap, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The second is the tension, which is what we'll look at tomorrow morning. And then the third will be a partial strategy for coping with and responding to it. And those will be the last two talks. And by the gap, I just mean exactly what it sounds like. Every one of you is a Christian as a human being, experiences a gap between what you wish your life was and what it actually is. Between what you wish what following Jesus and experiencing God was and what it actually is. Between what you wish your behavior was in loving God and loving other people or experiencing joy and peace and humility and what it actually is. There is a gap in all of our lives. And, and the question is, why is that gap there? What can we do about it? How does God think about that gap? Are there resources for it? Tonight, I wanna to focus on that, which is just talking about where that gap comes from and some of the things that I think overall we should be focusing on. Tomorrow morning, I'm suspecting that tomorrow morning's talk will be the one that might kind of jolt you in some surprising ways more than any other. I wanna to try to name and articulate where the tension in the Christian life actually comes from. Um, for a number of years now, I've been working with medical, medical school students students at Cornell Med School, which is in Manhattan, not up in Ithaca, and Columbia Med School. And it's just obviously a, tru a truism that you can't come up with a good treatment plan if you don't diagnose the problem rightly. And a lot of strategies, and this is something we're going to talk about here tonight, a lot of strategies that are often advertised, whether in sermons and talks or in Christian books or in Christian communities, that 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 make you sound, they get you excited at first, like, oh, this will be the solution that, that helps me bridge the gap, that helps me to overcome the frustration. And then you just realize, however you connect the dots, that they just don't actually bridge the gap. I'm still frustrated. I still feel the gap in my life. And a lot of the failed strategies that are out there, I think especially in the American church, are not entirely, but in part because they often misdiagnose where the tension in the Christian life actually is. And so let me pray to open us up, and then we'll jump in. Um, Father, thanks for this community. Thanks for the ministry fellows here. Thanks for the, the upperclassmen and the leaders. Thanks for the freshmen. Thanks for all the different topics and themes that will be pursued and explored this coming semester um, in Pen Faith and Action. And, and I just pray that as we um, dig in and delve into Romans, um, to other passages in Scripture, um, and as we examine why this gap in our lives is so pronounced and so frustrating, 
and so painful, as well as try to articulate and name where that comes from, why our lives, we just all have a visceral sense, are just always eluding us in terms of what they should be. And there is always this sense of no matter how well-intentioned we are, how prepared we are, um, how radical we are, how, um, how much willpower we put into it, that we always sense that we're missing something, that we're falling short of something, that we're being thwarted in, in what you've created and redeemed us to be. And I pray that you would help us to name and articulate where that tension comes from. And, and maybe most of all, I pray that this would be an encouraging weekend and that we would have a real sense of the way forward that your grace offers us and even challenges us with. And that you would help us to do that together in community in the body of Christ. Um, and so I pray that these times would be helpful, that you'd help us to engage you, engage one another, um, and, to, and to be reflective and to be um, open before you as those that you've created and loved and redeemed and given your spirit, as well as a mission in the world. Um, so thanks for this time. Thanks for this group of students. And I pray that you would be present with us, that you would help us and guide us and give us discernment and, and encourage our hearts to continue to press forward and to grow. Um, and I I pray for anyone in this room, and it's probably to some degree every single one of us, including me, who feels stuck in a certain area of their life or who feels really discouraged or who feels frustrated um, in some one or two or maybe 10 areas of life. I pray that there would be real um, both insight as well as encouragement and power even experienced this weekend um, through your spirit and through the scriptures. Thanks for Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection and for the hope and the identity that we have in him. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen. All right, so let me just do this. I, I will, tomorrow morning, we're really gonna almost look through Romans' big picture, tracing a specific theme in, in general. If you want to be um, on your own time this weekend, delving into scripture on your own in a way that connects with what we're doing, two places in Romans we will especially land on this weekend, Romans 6 through 8, We'll spend a lot of time looking at those three chapters and Romans 12 through 16. And, and one of the things I've been, I, I actually wrote the Bible course manual on Romans that you'll use this semester if you're a sophomore or junior, and it's a short semester. Maybe I, I would guess you'll get 10 weeks max to do Romans. And, and for various reasons, Romans is obviously, if you're a Christian and you grew up in the church or you've been in the church for a while, Romans is a pretty well-known document in the New Testament. I'll bet that a lot of you know Romans 1 through 5 or Romans 1 through 8, a whole lot better than you know Romans 12 through 16. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some is that, you know, Romans 1 through 8 is all the theological stuff that's interesting. Some of it is just you just lose momentum by the time you get to chapter 12. That's the biggest one for most of us. And, uh, and there's actually a great book. I didn't bring it this weekend, but great book by Scott McKnight, who's got a, a really popular blog called Jesus Creed, and he's a, a New Testament scholar. And he just released a book on Romans recently called Reading Romans Backwards, where he actually encourages you to start in chapter 16 and work backwards because, and, and I'll give much more defense and exposition of this later, but Romans was written so that you would get to Romans 12 through 16. Romans 12 through 16 is the goal of Romans 1 through 11. So let's start there. Romans 12, just one and two. I'm guessing this will be pretty familiar to a lot of you. This is, there's a lot of sections in Romans. Romans goes all over the place, but this is really the great hinge in Romans. Romans 1 through 11, basically what God has done for us in Christ through the Spirit, Romans 12 through 16, therefore how we respond to that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, which is really a, a one-phrase summary of Romans 1 through 11, to do this, to present your bodies, obviously to God, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or a better translation would probably be rational or logical um, worship. The, the, the idea is worship that makes sense, worship that is fitting, service that actually makes sense, given who God is and what he's done. Do not, on the one hand, be conformed to this world or to this age, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable and perfect. And we're going to look a lot at this idea of offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice, having discernment, a renewed mind, also being on guard to not be conformed to the pressures of the age and the structures of the world around us. All that stuff we'll look at. Um, but I encourage you, Romans 12 through 16, Romans 6 through 8, we'll be in it a lot this semester. 
As we begin tonight, what I want to do, and, and, and again, I already said it, but by the gap in your life, you can think of this great picture in Romans 7 where this person, whoever he or she is, whether they're a Christian or not, but this great description of the very things I want to do, I can't do. And the very things I hate, I end up doing. That's the gap. James 4, why, in spite of your convictions and your confession of faith, why do you quarrel and rage and have conflicts with each other? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? That's the gap. That, that it's, it's everywhere in the New Testament. Um, Hebrews, at the end of chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 6, I always think of this, uh, some of you probably have seen it on reruns on Netflix because you're too young to have seen the original run, but Arrested Development, um, anybody see that? It, it's really Hebrews 5 and 6, which is by this time, brothers and sisters, you ought to be this far in the faith, but you're not. You're stuck back here and you need the ABCs all over again. It's like it's arrested development. And that happens over and over and over in the Christian community and in our lives. That's the gap. What do we do with it? And, and there's lots of things that, that Christians do about it. Almost nobody denies it's there. Um, but I'm going to summarize three main approaches or strategies that I've seen, that I've tried, that I've probably taught to others at one point or another, and I've certainly heard a billion times as a Christian of things that we can do in response to the gap. And they're not necessarily dead wrong. Maybe one of them is, but they're more incomplete. And even more than that, they're not getting at what the issue really is. Here's the first one in your Ivy League students and your Bible courses. So a lot of you will actually maybe even right now think that this is the main one, which is kind of this paradigm. More information leads to transformation. Doxo sorry, good theology leads to doxology. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And that's just not true. It's just not true. I know a lot of Christians who have incredibly nuanced and incredibly accurate and incredibly faithful theology, and they are rotten to the bone. And they don't love God, and they don't love their neighbor as themselves. They rub everybody around them as arrogant they don't smell like the aroma of Christ. And James K. Smith, I'm going I'm to recommend a couple of practical resources that you could follow up from this weekend on. James K. Smith is maybe the guy who's getting into this stuff most practically in the last couple of years. Um, let me mention this one first. You are what you love, the spiritual power of habit. This is such a phenomenal book. This would probably be the first thing I would recommend you read if you want to pursue this more. He's got these great analogies and concrete ways of putting it. And he says that a lot of Christian strategies for discipleship functionally have an anthropology, a vision of what it means to be human, where we're thinking things, or in an even better image, where we're brains on a stick. And as he often likes to quip, your brain is not only not the only organ in your body, it's not the main one influencing what you do. Um, there's a couple of other organs that are much more influential in your behavior every day than your brain. And we often have this almost Descartian, I think, therefore I am. I think true thoughts, therefore I'm a faithful follower of Jesus. And I'm not saying that theology is not important. If you know anything about me, I love theology. I spend a lot of time digging deep into scripture, but both in my own life as well as just in my experience of other Christians of the body of Christ, there is no one-to-one -one correlation you can honestly make between theological accuracy and intensity and faithfulness and what a person's life actually looks like. It's not to say there's no connection, but that's not the only one and it's not the main one. And I think often we have this um, idea, which in some ways is almost Gnosticism, that there's a secret that only the elite, really smart people get to. And if you just figure out that secret formula, all your problems will go away. And that's just not true. That's, that's Gnosticism, a heresy in the early church. So this one assumes that the key thing to gain access to is your mind. Your mind is the main problem in the Christian life. And that's not true. Your mind is important but it's not where the tension really comes from. A second one is this. In pretty intentional, nuanced circles like this, very rarely will it probably be said out loud blatantly, but it is in the air in Western Christianity. And it's basically this, is to look at the gap, to look at our patterns of getting stuck, of selfishness and idolatry and disobedience, and to basically say, it doesn't matter, grace. It doesn't matter, grace. And to basically say, what you need is to stop beating yourself up 
All this discouragement you feel, that's actually your unbelief. And you need to remember that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and you need to just stop beating yourself up. And all of that, again, like, like that's not a exactly wrong in every sense, but it is basically wrong. Um, it's what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And he basically says, we walk around and we absolve ourselves of responsibility for what we're doing. And we use the grace of God as a means to an end. And it's interesting that, that any Christian who does this on a regular basis, I've learned, doesn't actually do it for other Christians. They're always bothered by other Christians' hypocrisy, but grace covers their own hypocrisy. Um, and so this idea that, that basically you need an experience in your heart of just experiencing God's love a little more, understood as the grandpa sentimental in the sky who just kind of wink, wink, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. And, and here you just need an experience of the heart of God's grace, again, understood as forgiveness. If you had been around my grad school Bible courses the past few years or, or the time that I spent with undergrads back in Boston, I probably use this illustration so often that, that my students just get tired of it, but since I don't see you guys often, I'll use it. I became a Christian in North Carolina in college. I grew up in New York, and, and I'm so grateful for what I experienced in college. Um, I'm grateful for a lot of aspects of kind of Bible Belt um, kind of culture in the world down there. But, but one of the things I always remember is that, and if you've ever been down there, you know this, at least back then, there's Christian bumper stickers on the cars all the time. And one of the bumper stickers I used to see all the time, even then it bothered me, but over the years, I used it as an illustration, I actually think it's heretical. I think it should be branded as, in church history, one of the heresies we should stay away from. And it would say this, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Now, again, like a lot of heresies, it's not like in every sense wrong, and it's subtle. Heresies always are. It is true that Christians are not perfect. It is also true that Christians are forgiven. It is a heresy to think that Christians are just forgiven. You are not just forgiven. You are also indwelt by the Spirit of God. You've also been cleansed and transformed. You've also been called to obedience in Christ. And no Christian is just forgiven. And the just forgiven paradigm is one of the ways we often respond to the gap in the Christian life, which is this basically becomes what church is for on Sundays. You come get recharged and feel good about yourself again. And then you go get the crap beat out of you all the other six days of the week. And you're feeling down and you come back to church and you feel good about yourself again and it just produces an endless taking advantage of the grace of God. Um, so again, do we sometimes need when we failed just the reminder that God loves us and that we stand righteous in Christ? Absolutely, but we need a whole lot more than that. And to be honest, we need mostly something other than that. Um, let me put it this way. Um, again, maybe to, to be a bit provocative, but to get us thinking in this direction, legalism is a word that Christians often throw out is like the boogeyman. And, and legalism is bad. Thinking that you need to earn God's approval, I would bet a lot of money that legalism is not anybody's on anybody's top 10 problem list in this room. I'll bet that nobody in this room that one of your top 10 problems is you're just trying too dang hard <laughs> with respect to obeying God. You're probably trying too hard in some other areas of your life, but I'll bet that if I looked at your life, I wouldn't see like, whoa, that dude's going like overboard with respect to like prayer, reading scripture, serving the poor. That's not, that is a problem. And in certain moments in church history and in world history, that does become a problem. But don't always, just because that's a problem, appeal to it as the thing that we need to stay away from. Um, and so again, this, this paradigm, this strategy is basically stop trying so hard. And I don't think that's actually the main thing you need as a Christian to just be reassured that you should stop trying so hard. And then the third one is the exact opposite. And then I'll spend the rest of our time tonight giving you a sense of where my overall paradigm is going to be. And then I'll spend the rest of the weekend trying to flesh out why I think this is the paradigm or a paradigm, as well as where this comes from in scripture, what it means practically. But the third failed strategy is this. If the last one was don't try so hard, the third one is this, be radical, pray more read the Bible more, try harder, be zealous, have an emotional experience where it's cathartic and the spirit has, you could look back and be like, this is the moment. Became a Christian back there, but that was the moment I really became a Christian and just try harder. More, more, more. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2, people who come up with rules and are really intense and do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, and they're really severe on themselves, but it does nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. They're still self-centered, they're still idolatrous. Outwardly, they look religious, but it's all still being directed in poisonous ways. 
So should you pray more? Absolutely. Should you read scripture more? Absolutely. But simply upping your intake by 30% is gonna do literally zero to what the problem actually is and why the gap is there. If you understand some other things of where the tension comes from and what the gospel offers us, then yes, insofar as on other grounds, you're going in the right direction. If you up your intake on prayer 30%, that's a good thing. But upping the intake, just being radical is not itself gonna do it. In fact, if anything, it might even make you a little worse. It might make the people around you even more reluctant to cross the street and, and run into you when you're walking down the street because you might become even more intolerable in your zeal, in your radicalism. And again, I think in many Christian circles, that's often the response that you hear when we notice that, man, the church just isn't what it's supposed to be. And I agree with that. The church in general is not what it's supposed to be, but a simple appeal to our will to be more radical, to be more serious, to just try harder, to just stop being so flaky is just putting a Band-Aid on what the thing really is. Um, and so, again, the first one is the mind. Put right information in, get the wrong ideas out. Again, I didn't mention this. Many Christians really emphasize worldview. We need to have the right worldview, and then we'll be faithful Christians. The second one is to have an experience of God's grace in your heart, just a sense of assurance that you're forgiven and loved. And the third one is an appeal to your will to just try harder. And I think all three of those strategies miss what the central issue is. Tomorrow morning, I will try to explain what I think the source of the tension is. But for now, I just want to point this out, um, and this will really be the big theme of the weekend. Um, in my mind, the, the, the theme of the whole weekend is body practices. And, and there is a bit of a double entendre there. I mean both like li your literal physical body, what you do with it, what practices you engage in, but I also mean as, as Paul himself in Romans 12. Romans 12, 1, he says, offer up your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice to God, in the very next paragraph, starting in verse three, he says, your bodies are actually members of a larger body, the body of Christ. And so what we do when we gather together as the body of Christ, those practices, I think are actually pretty crucial. Now, real quick, before I move into the second half and wrap up, maybe we can do some Q&A tonight. And then again, I'm, I'm excited to dig into this with you guys this weekend. Um, I also wanna be clear, I should, have, I should have said this a few minutes ago, the first aspect is the gap, which I've talked about tonight. Tomorrow morning, we'll talk about the tension. I'm not calling the third aspect, which will be the last two talks this weekend, the strategy, because there is no the strategy. And in fact, this isn't the main thing I'm saying this weekend, but one of the things we'll talk about is there is nothing you can do to overcome the frustration finally. In this life, before we are raised from the dead, and our bodies are glorified and, and filled in every sense with God's spirit physically and not just internally, there will be groaning in our lives. There will be frustration. And part of the Christian life is actually learning not to be frustrated by your frustration in a meta kind of way, but to actually channel your frustration in hope towards the future and in yearning towards the future. But Nonetheless, there are some things we can do about the frustration that sometimes I think we don't. And I want you to notice that all the failed strategies or, in part or incomplete strategies I mentioned, that they all avoid your body. There's your heart and how you feel on the inside. There's your will and what you intend to do. There's your mind and what you think, but they all avoid your body. And this is gonna be, give me a second, this is gonna be maybe a bit of a creepy analogy, um, but I, I'm using it to get to a point. If one of you came up to me, if Isaiah came up to me, and he won't because he's got Tucker, and Tucker's way better at this than I am, but if Isaiah came up to me and said, Nick, I'm really frustrated that, that I haven't grown as much as I want to in the Christian life. In this next season, would you just meet with me one-on-one -on -one and mentor me and disciple me? Just help me grow in, 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 in Christ. One of the things I realize as I get older is the first thing I would want to know, and this is where it's, it's creepy if it's literal, so just, just bear with me, is I would almost want Isaiah to carry around a video camera all day long and show me what he's actually doing. I wouldn't want to know, what's your theology? I wouldn't want to know, what are you feeling on the inside all day long? I wouldn't want to know, what are your intentions and your commitments that you made the day before the New Year's and the resolution? I would want to know, what are you actually doing all day long? What's your body doing? What are you doing with your hands? What are your eyes looking at? 
How often do you move and how often are you stationary? How much of your time every day goes in this direction versus that direction? When you feel a little frustrated, what do you do with your body in those moments? I would basically wanna know what your practice is, what your routine is, what your habits are. There's, there's an old saying, but I think it's true. The way you spend your hours and days is the way you spend your life. And what you're doing with your body in space, the space you occupy, the time that you're taking up is what your life actually is. And that is the source of what is still going wrong with each of us, whether it's from the world or whether it's from our own bodies. We'll talk about that tomorrow morning. And it's where the gospel bids us to actually live in a different way, which is why I'll bet that some of you have done this implicitly. Go back to Romans 12 real quick. I have re-narrated in my own head almost never all that explicitly what Paul actually says to mean something else, which is offer up yourselves to God as living sacrifices. Offer up all that you are to God. As, and, and I think that's true, we should, but it's not what Paul says. He chooses the word body and what he's primarily focused on is offer your bodies to God as living sacrifices. We're gonna see tomorrow morning that the concept of our bodies shows up in every stage of Romans. It's central to what has gone wrong with us as human beings in Romans 1 through 3. It is central to what Christ used in his obedience to God. And as Paul says in Romans 8, that it was in his body that sin was condemned on the cross. And it was in his body that he got up out of the grave. It's into your body that the spirit of God has been unleashed to indwell your body. We are groaning for Romans 8, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 12, we now offer up our bodies to God. And now we are in a body that acts differently than people do with their bodies outside of the church. What you are doing with your bodies is central to the strategy you need to have in the Christian life. And if you are anything like me, I'm introverted, I'm kind of theoretical and nerdy and intellectual, and not all of you are, are you know, kind of captivated with the same weaknesses I am, but because you live in the modern world, which by and large is a passive world, where you're sitting around staring at screens a lot, you're not outside doing a whole lot, and you're living in a fallen world where everything is structured by idolatry, I think for each one of you in one way or another, yes, you could grow the semester theologically. You could understand more about the gospel. You could understand more about who God is, and that would be great. And yes, you could have maybe more emotional experiences of God's grace in your life. And yes, you could be more firm in your commitments and more intentional. But what I think, almost without exception, what each of us needs is to actually step back and look at what your body is doing all day long and to think about what it would look like to redirect it towards God and to redirect it towards his purposes, to redirect it towards other people. This is, there's a sense in which everything I'm doing this weekend is going to lead to encouraging you, not commanding you, not, not guilting you. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. And how you might do this could be as different for every single one of you as you are from each other, but there's basically two overall things I'm gonna encourage you to do this weekend and going out of this weekend. The first is a negative task, the second is a positive task. And, and this will make more and more sense as we go throughout the weekend, I promise. The first one, the negative task, I'm literally ripping off from James K. Smith, which is I wanna encourage you and maybe even begin this weekend, you have time, is to do what James K. Smith calls an audit of your practices is to step back and say, what do I do all day long on Mondays? When I get some free time on Saturdays, what do I do? Like, it, it, and again, this is where the, the video camera, nobody's gonna video camera, video camera you, I'm certainly not, but maybe just have a journal, right? Like if your finances were out of control, one of the first things somebody would say is, keep a budget and keep a list of what you're actually spending your money on. What a lot of us do in that moment is to say, I'm just in general, with my good intentions, gonna just not spend as much. And then the next month you're like, man, I'm just as broke as I was last month. Like you gotta sit down and actually do an audit of how you spend money. And that's true in any area of life is to sit down and, and to ask yourself over time, and some of you might do this together if you trust each other, and to actually say, yeah, what am I actually doing? And, and notice again, the question here is not, what am I thinking all day long? That's not the question. The question is not, what am I feeling all day long? That's not the question. It's not, what am I intending to do all day long? It's, what are you doing all day long? 
And here's one of the really encouraging things, which is there's actually some really low-hanging fruit and some really easy wins that can happen. But because we're so often focused on our minds or our hearts or our wills, we often overlook some of the most obvious things that cause us to feel far from God, that cause us to feel frustrated with ourselves, that cause us to feel stuck in a rut. Some of these things are really easily dealt with. Others of them are not, um, but I encourage you to do that. Take an audit of your bodily practices. And, and we'll see Romans constantly talks about this. What are your eyes doing? What's coming out of your mouth? What are your feet doing? What are you doing with your gestures? Um, when you um, get up and spend your time or your energy that way, what are you doing it towards and for what end? Um, one of the things, this is so simple, but as I've thought about this more and more as I get older, it, at least for me to step back and think about this, to realize this is helpful, at every stage of redemptive history, God gives his people stuff to do. Like he never just says, hey, believe these truths about me. Now you know. Or, hey, just sit around, guys. Israel and the wilderness, just sit around and have nice experiences emotionally. Never says like sit down and make lists of resolutions with your will. He gives his people stuff to do. And here's the thing that as you do an audit of your own life, and at some point, I don't want to put any any exhortations on you guys that you individually or your leaders don't feel good about, but here's just an idea in general. Here, as well as in local churches and in Christian communities you're part of in the future, is do an audit of what you're doing as a community when you get together. Because one of the things that should be different about the body of Christ is that what we do is not just what everybody else is doing and we just put Jesus at the end of the sentence, but that we actually have different practices. And that's one of the reasons I want us to spend a lot of time this weekend in Romans 12 through 16. And let me draw your attention, if you're still in Romans 12, to just two things. And then I'll draw your attention to the handout, and then we'll maybe do some Q&A as we get ready for tomorrow. Two things that Romans 12 mentions. If you go down to verse 15, we're given this command, and this is something to do. This is not a command to think this and believe it, although you should. It's not a command to feel this. It's not a com- in the sense of like internally in the abstract in isolation. It's not a command to intend this. It's a command to do something, which is when there are other people around you who are experiencing joy, enter into it and rejoice with them. When there are people around you who are sorrowful, don't just sit there. And be like, well, that's interesting that that person's sorrowful right now. Be like, man, that's intense how sorrowful that person is right now. I'm going to go the other direction. Or even be like with a stoical face, I am sorry that you are sorry right now. Right? Like, like one of the things we don't do very well in the modern world is we don't enter into other people's emotional experiences and just in general, their experiences very well. We'll see this tomorrow morning. One of the reasons that our bodies are so problematic is, and I'm going to get a little meta here and then tomorrow morning I'll flesh this out. Your body is constantly presenting you with desires, passions, hungers, cravings. Some of you, you're all aware of that, especially when you step back and just notice that about yourself, that all the time you're not content, all the time you're restless, all the time your body's giving you stuff to go out and do so that it might be satisfied, so that you might experience something you're not experiencing now. And sometimes we think that what's wrong with that is that our body is wanting the wrong things. And that's certainly true sometimes, that our bodies and ourselves as fallen human beings, that we often want things we shouldn't want, but that's not the main thing that's wrong. And in fact, in a created world that's good, you can actually make a pretty persuasive argument that you never want wrong things because there are no wrong things because everything is good. Sometimes you you want the right things at the wrong time, Sometimes you want the right thing in the wrong context or to the wrong degree, but what your body wants is never in in and of itself to be criticized. But here's the million-dollar issue. Your body not only has these desires and urges and cravings that make you restless and frustrated and, and constantly not like, oh, you know what I want? Just more of what I'm already experiencing, but constantly searching, constantly seeking. But more than anything else, your body presents its desires to you as an experience that is the central priority in the entire universe. That what you want is the central issue in the universe. And so all day long, you spend time thinking primarily about what you want. You spend time thinking about how could I get what my body wants? You spend time thinking, how could I not feel as miserable as I do now and instead feel better? And other people and God tend to only come into your view insofar as they might help satisfy those cravings. 
You know what people who live like that never do? Notice the joy of other people. Notice the weeping of other people. And so, have you ever noticed that you can sit in a cafeteria in a public place? You can even be around your closest friends, and more often than not, people totally miss that you're overwhelmed by something or are totally indifferent towards that you're super excited about something because we're all too busy focused on the meta-priority that our own desires give to us. And so in the body of Christ, we don't do that anymore. Not because we always feel that way. In fact, as Christians, we will feel that way as much as non-Christians do. But nonetheless, we commit to practices where when we see somebody else rejoicing in the room, we make a move to enter into that joy with them for their sake. When we see someone else weeping in the room, we enter into that with sorrow, even though that has nothing to do with me and in and of itself gives me anything my body tells me I want. Imagine if whenever we got together as Christians, that was a regular experience we all had that we entered into each other's victories and sorrows. One of the things that you would notice about that is this place is different than any other community I'm a part of. And I think you would walk away both when you were the one entering into somebody else's joy or sorrow, being like, man, like that was hard to do because I wanted somebody else to notice my joy or my sorrow. But man, that felt so good to be able to love somebody like that in that moment. That, meant, that just felt so good and refreshing. And when somebody would enter into yours, you would almost be shocked that you were the center of somebody else's attention for a few minutes because our bodies always encourage all of us to be the center of the universe all the time. And that's what's wrong with us. Not our minds, not our hearts, not our wills in these sense, but that our bodies constantly present their desires as the primary thing in the universe. And here's Paul saying, get your body and offer it to God instead, instead of you serving what your body tells you at once. And that takes a miracle to do that. It also takes a community to do that. And so we'll talk about what that looks like. Second one, and then we'll wrap up here in a minute. There's lots of ways you can translate this one, but I love this one. In verse 10, it's the second command. The ESV translates it as outdo one another. It's literally a competition verb. Compete with one another in showing honor to others. Ivy League campuses, not uniquely, but pretty strikingly, and arguably every culture in the history of the fallen world can be described as in part a competition against one another for honor. Every community in the history of the world sets people against each other in order to see who can get the most honor. Now, this is an ancient way of talking. We don't talk like this anymore. Or if we do, we're like Asian cultures in the East, they're still honor-shame cultures, but we're not. Every culture in the universe ever is an honor-shame culture. We are virtue signaling all the time. We are thinking about how other people see us all the time. We are doing things or not doing things in order that somebody else would notice all the time. And we are competing with one another to be at the top of that chain. Imagine if in the body of Christ, we found practices to outdo one another in showing honor to somebody else instead of me. Imagine if this community actually did that. Not like thought about that or believed in that in their doctrine statement on the website, but actually had practices where we did that. I think each of you would experience an excitement, a sense of fruition and fulfillment, a sense of, of just joy if other people around you were doing that to you and you found yourself doing that with other people. There's something that you all experience all the time. It could be on social media. It could be with your friends, which is you do this. There's this craving your body gives you to be noticed by others and then you do it and then you just feel terrible afterwards and so trivial and so superficial and so fake. And the reality is that if you can say no to what your body wants there and instead offer up your body to God, and because God is revealed in Jesus, this is a God who gives honor to others and who puts the interests of others in front of his own. And we enter into that with our bodily practices. I think a lot of the frustration we feel begins to get kind of redirected in some ways. And so overall this weekend, I'm gonna argue that one of the most practical things you can do won't solve everything but I think it's a weak area for most of us in Western Christianity is to be intentional about what your practices are with your body. 
And so I already mentioned negatively, I want you to maybe think about doing an audit of your bodily practices. Here's the second thing I encourage you to do. You could start this weekend. Um, and again, we got lots of time in the scriptures this weekend to talk much more practically than I am tonight about what this might look like. But the second thing is this, and, and if, if the first one was do an audit of your current practices, the second one is actually taking a phrase that goes at least all the way back to St. Benedict, goes back, in terms of the reality of it, goes back even before him, but one that Western Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, tends to be either ignorant of or suspicious of, I'm going to encourage you to design a rule of life, to design a rule of life. And this doesn't mean rule in the sense of, I can do these seven things, but it's not rule in that sense. It's more a game plan for what practices you want to focus on every day, every week, every year. So for instance, at the end of each talk, not as much tonight, but the next three talks, at the end of each talk, I want to just kind of for the last maybe five or 10 minutes, hold up two or three practices to you and talk about what they actually mean, what they actually might look like, and to say, hey, maybe consider doing this. And, and let me just do one tonight as we end, which is I'll bet that a lot of you hardly ever stop working. I'll bet a lot of you all seven days of the week kind of blur together. There's no real boundaries between thinking about the next test, thinking about how what you're doing now connects to the career you have in the future, and that if and I'm even though I'm a bit different than you guys, I didn't go into Ivy League school. I wasn't I wasn't motivated or driven quite the way you guys are. I am really bad at resting, and rest is a really central practice God gives his people to do. And this doesn't mean just don't do anything. In fact, that's not even primarily what it means. And one of the reasons I'm really bad at rest, I would actually give you two reasons, and I'll bet a lot of you will recognize yourself in me here. One is that all I really ever knew how to do in life is to do A, comma, so that B would come about. And I just don't know how to do anything else. If I'm doing A, it's with a view towards so that I can pass this test, so that I can get this girl to like me, so that I can get this job in the future, so that my body looks better than it does now, and I'm never not doing A so that B happens. And this is what rest is. I do A because it's good, period. I do B because God created the world good and beautiful, and he wants me to enjoy this for its own sake, Every once in a while, and because we live in such a rat race of a culture, our culture is so committed to never encouraging us, even discouraging us to slow down. But every once in a while, it does like A, comma, B, B, comma, C. Like what's at the end of that, that sequence? Like what is at the end of that sequence? And either there is no end or at some point there's something that's intrinsically worthwhile. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to know that there are already things that are intrinsically worthwhile. And so when I encourage you to practice rest, what I'm not encouraging you to do is to be passive. In fact, I'll bet that because most of you, I've known Ivy League students for a long time, and I know what it means to live in this culture, I'll bet that a lot of you are functionally workaholics. And I'll also bet that a lot of you functionally spend a lot of your time pretty passive, paralyzed, sitting around, not able to focus, beating yourself up because you're not where you are. People who work all the time don't work very well. People who work all the time are actually not super active. They're usually pretty passive. When you rest, I think you should like go for a walk in creation, go to an art museum, go play sports with a friend and don't do it in order that something else would happen. And so here's the other thing I'm really bad at that, uh, that I've had to learn, which is resting in scripture. Another way to talk about it is it's celebrating. I'll bet a lot of you are like me and that you don't really know how to celebrate. On Ivy League campuses, on college campuses in general, Friday nights, you might think, no, college students know how to celebrate. Friday nights on college campuses are not really celebration. They're more like manic. They're more like the steam needs to get out one way or the other. That's not celebration. That's a recipe for mental health disasters for the rest of your life. It, it really is. Celebration is calm, it's collected, it's present, it's not anxious, it's not crazy, it's not out of control. Here's a, a great thing to practice and to grow in practice. Do you have three or five or 10 things in your life that you can do just because you enjoy them and do it to the glory of God and give them thanks? God, thanks that this tastes like this. Thanks that when I do this in nature, I just feel alive. Thanks that when I have a conversation with a friend and we're just here because we love each other, thanks that like I can just enjoy it like this. 
I'll bet a lot of you need to put some work into learning how to celebrate, learning how to be present. And if you did, that would do in and of itself more than reading a 7,000-page theology book this semester for you. That would do more than showing up at every Christian conference hoping that the Holy Spirit would just do something emotionally in your heart. That would do something more than all your strategizing and writing down lists of what you intend to do next year. If you would just say, no matter what, this one day a week or these three times for a three-hour window each week, no matter what, this is non-negotiable. I stop doing A for B, no matter how much I'm anxious about B not happening unless I keep doing A, and I just celebrate, I just rest. I would say that that should be in your rule of life. And there's going to be on your handout that, that I gave out, on the first page, and we'll wrap up with this, on the first page is not an exhaustive, but a good start of a list of practices. Tomorrow morning and and throughout the weekend, I'm going to talk about what practices actually are, some of the things that characterize them. And in there, I have celebration, fasting and feasting, um, resting from work, stuff like that. This is a good start that you might look through this and say, oh, like, like three or four of these I want to choose and put in my rule of life this semester. Your rule of life is not there for you to look out the next day and be like, man, I am such a failure. That's, that's not what it's for. It's there to say, I want my daily and weekly routine to revolve around some of these things. And they involve what you do with your body. They involve what you do with your hands and your eyes and your tongue. They involve movement and they involve doing things more often than not with others. Um, As I end, I will mention um, just a couple of things here. And then uh, if we have time for Q&A, great. If not, we'll, we'll do that tomorrow morning. The first two on the list, if you're looking at it, you're like, man, it's not what I would have expected. First on the list, holy kiss and foot washing. And, and here's why I put those at the top. One, to get your attention, but two, because none of you should put holy kiss or foot washing in your rule of life. None of you should practice the holy kiss. None of you should practice foot washing. One of the things I, I'm doing by mentioning this is to one, draw your attention to most of the New Testament letters end with a command to greet each other with a holy kiss. Jesus in John 13 on the final night of his life washes the feet of his disciples and says, go and do likewise, you do this too. And in the pastoral epistles, we're told that one of the things that marks out widows as being truly faithful widows is that they have washed the feet of the saints. And I don't think any of you should wash anybody's feet. I don't think any of you should greet each other with a holy kiss because one of the things that's true about practices in the church is that they're adaptive and they're contextual. So as we end, some of you might know this, but I'll bet a lot of you don't. The holy kiss in the ancient world or the kiss of love, literally, it certainly wasn't romantic. You probably get that. But it also wasn't just like a generic, hey, be affectionate to each other. The kiss of love is how siblings greeted each other in the ancient world. What Paul is telling you is that however family members greet each other in our culture, when you guys get together, you're not a voluntary association You're not buds who might be friends for three years and then ditch each other after that. You guys are brothers and sisters. Act like it. Greet each other like that. Welcome each other. One of the reasons that's radical is because I'll bet that if any of you in the future, maybe some of you have already experienced this, if any of you in the future run into significant financial difficulty, I'll bet that unless you have a really damaged family in the background, that the first people you would think who will come to your aid are your biological family members, and hopefully they will. I'll bet that most of you in the churches and communities you're in would feel incredibly awkward asking a fellow Christian or the community of faith you're involved in to help you financially. And the reason you would probably rightly feel awkward is we're not actually brothers and sisters in the church in the way that we treat each other. That's off limits. No, 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 I'm not that serious about showing up here on Friday nights or on a retreat once a semester. And so one of the things we should do is find ways to actually engage one another as brothers and sisters, even though we're not related to each other. You know, skin colors are different here. Cultural backgrounds are different here. Ages are different in the body of Christ. Nonetheless, greet one another as brothers and sisters in the deepest, truest sense. And foot washing is, and and you probably get a sense of this, it's something that a slave does in the ancient world. It's a menial task, it's awful, and it's degrading. And not only does Jesus do it, but he's the one who's above his disciples. And so, and this is in Romans 12, foot washing is in Romans 12, but you just missed it, which is do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. What if we regularly found in our rule of life, time every week, you guys live in Philadelphia, 
There is a lot of brokenness in Philadelphia in any American city. There are a lot of people who are utterly ignored by our society, both by liberals and by conservatives. Liberals and conservatives tend, in general, to all be trying to fix the big structural problems in the world, and we ignore the brokenness of the world that's right in front of our face all the time. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is that it's so dang demeaning to get down and serve people who smell bad and who are mentally unhealthy, who are really broken and really difficult to love, and Christians should get down and wash their feet. But they don't need their feet washed. They need other stuff. And you should figure out what that is and you should do that. And if you did stuff like that on a regular basis, I'll bet that by and large, the love of God would begin to seem more real to you experientially. That the gospel would begin to feel more impactful. That you might actually want to pray 30% more than you're praying now because you'd feel a sense of it as well as an excitement for it. This is... Um, I think centrally what Romans 12 through 16 is about. I encourage you to look at it this weekend. We are given stuff to do as the body of Christ. Um, I'm just going to end with that. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to throw back out to you guys. And again, tomorrow morning, we'll look at where the tension comes from. Father, thank you for this group. And I do pray. Um, I'm always aware, but especially on a topic like this. Um, yeah, I pray that this would be clear, if there's anything that's not helpful or not true in what I said, do you give the people of God discernment? But insofar as there is um, some, some self-evidential truth in light of Romans, in light of scripture overall, that you are a God who gives us stuff to do and a God who has not only created us with bodies, who's not only put your spirit within our bodies, who's not only given us the body of Christ to be members of, but who calls us to offer up our bodies every moment of every day not our minds, not our hearts, not our wills in the abstract, but our bodies, what we're doing with the members of our body to your service, to your worship, to the needs of our neighbor. And I pray that you would help us. Even, I just think in the, in the coming hours and days this weekend, that maybe just thinking about an audit of our lives. What am I actually doing with the body that God has given me? What am I doing with the time and the space I'm in? What am I doing with the, the desires, the fallenness of my body constantly tempts me to think are the most important fact in the universe and the most central concern to give my attention and my focus to? And how am I using my body to serve the needs of those around me in love? Um, I pray that you would help us to think through how the age that we're in, the culture we're in, um, really needs to not be conformed to, as Paul says here in Romans 12, but instead for us to be transformed in the renewing of our mind that we might discern the death-dealing um, ways of our culture and not partake in them, not participate, but instead, as the body of Christ together, have an alternative way of life. Um, that's neighbor-centered, other-centered, that's um, the imitation of Christ, and that's a life of um, certainly discipline and self-denial and suffering in some ways, but also profound joy and profound um, being in step with the grain of the universe and with who you've made us to be. Um, and I also pray that you give us wisdom for what maybe new practices we each need to maybe give a little more time and attention to structuring our days and our hours and our time around in the weeks and months and years to come. And I pray that our practices would show um, that we are a people who offer up our bodies to you in gratitude and worship because of your mercy. Um, so again, um, I pray that you would lead us this weekend, and, and I pray that this would be overall encouraging, illuminating, that would give us stuff to do. Um, and I just think of how in Romans 3, when Paul's talking about the sinfulness of human beings apart from Christ, he talks about their tongues run this way, their mouths do this, their hands find evil to do, their feet run to violence, and here we are in Romans 12, and the members of our body are being redirected towards you and towards our neighbor instead of towards our own sinful desires. And I pray that our bodies would actually participate in that story. We need your spirit for that. We need one another. Um, but yeah, I pray that this would be a weekend where we would grow in these areas and that you would encourage us in our routines, in our habits, in our schedules, and that your spirit would breathe life into these efforts. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You guys want to break up in the small groups or should we do Q&A for a minute? Break up in the small groups? Okay. Break up in the small groups and then, okay. Oh, maybe, maybe just a couple questions. Okay. Is that what you said? 
One question? Cool. One question. One question. Go for it, Jackson. So, I was a little confused. What, what are you, like, when I'm reading this list of, like, spiritual practices or Christian practices, um, I, I'm trying to figure out what the difference between that and what you were saying. Um, I think it was the problem, it was the second, uh, the third problem, which is, like... Be more radical. Yeah, do a great question. Try harder and, like, white-knuckle it. Like, is, like... I could see serving or fasting or praying as a Great question. Absolutely. Yeah. Tomorrow, in the morning, certainly at night, I want to get to that much more in depth. For now, I'll point you to two passages in 1 Corinthians that I find very helpful. 1 Corinthians 11, not as well known, but it's a, a treatment of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion. And Paul paints a picture of a community that when they gather together in Corinth, they grab the bread, they sit on the table, they grab the bread, and they say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And they say the words, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And because of what is actually going on there, Paul says, when you gather together to do that, you are not actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. Because the context is that the rich in Corinth come in first and they get drunk and they actually have an entire meal. They have like steak and potatoes and chocolate cake. And then there's a couple of crackers and some grape juice left over for when the poor Christians come in. Modern context, white church, maybe today, maybe 50 years ago, black Christians aren't allowed in or they have to sit up in the balcony and they don't get to participate in the Lord's Supper. When those white Christians engage in what they think is the Lord's Supper, Paul says, it's not actually the Lord's Supper you're doing. If that's true, that you can pray without praying, that you can fast without fasting. It's what Isaiah 58 says. I don't care about your fasting. I don't care that you spend this many hours praying. I don't care about your new moons and your celebrations and your festivals. I don't care about your sacrifices because simply doing this more is not at the heart of it. What is at the heart of it? And it's, it's knowing the story that's in it. Right, like you could actually, in our own twisted ways, do the outdo one another as showing honor to one another as just another way of showing that you deserve more honor than everybody else. And you wouldn't actually be outdoing anybody and showing honor to others. And so simply doing more out of a posture of idolatry, of selfishness, of, of self-centeredness doesn't mean it. And so yes, in general, praying more is helpful, but more than that, Praying in the spirit, whatever that means, is what's really important. I know a lot of people who pray a lot every day, and I'm pretty sure they're not praying in the spirit. I know some people who pray 20 minutes a day, and I think they're praying in the spirit. So yes, on average, all things being equal, doing something more, all things being equal, better than doing it less, but never the main thing. And in 1 Corinthians 1, the other great sacrament in, in church tradition is baptism. And baptism is really important, like the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, I am glad that I didn't baptize any of you. Why? Because what they're doing with baptism is, I, I was baptized by Paul. You're baptized by Peter? Man, sorry for you. Right? And they're, and, and they're looking at baptism as a way to identify with a group. I was baptized in a Methodist church. You were baptized in a Presbyterian church, man. That's barely even a baptism. Right? Like, when you do that, when you do that, you're not getting baptized. You're just taking a bath. Right? There's this great scene in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Anybody remember this one? where the three convicts escape and the one guy jumps down to the river where the Christians are getting baptized and he gets baptized because what he thinks it means is that he doesn't have to go back to jail. And George Clooney's character is like, well, unfortunately, the great state of Mississippi is not nearly as lenient as the Almighty. And the whole point is when he did that, he was not actually getting baptized. He was just taking a bath. And so understanding intentionality participation in the story of Jesus in doing these things is actually always the most important thing, not how often you do it, um, right? Like you could put on your rule of life, Sabbath rest, and make your Sabbath one day a week or two times, four hours a day, make it one more thing that you got to do. Make it one more thing where A, so that B, so that I can feel good before God, so that I can, you know, show my face without feeling guilty here, or so that I need to do it well enough, or because if, 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 I, if I don't rest well enough this day, I'll feel guilty afterwards or feel like a failure. All these things can be corrupted, and, and actually, I didn't bring it this weekend, and it's not necessarily one of the four or five first things I would encourage you to go to, but there's a great female theologian at Duke Divinity School named Lauren Winner, who just wrote a book in the last year or two called The Danger of Christian Practices. 
and all of you know this, but she tells story after story of pious slave owners praying over here and then whipping their slaves the next moment of crusaders bowing down with crosses on their shields as they slaughter Muslim infants because they would grow up Muslim and go to hell, but if they die as infants, they won't, and singing praise songs as they do it. Christian practices in and of themselves do nothing. Understanding them as flowing out of the story of Jesus and participating in them for what they are is important. And so in some ways, I almost, Jackson, I almost didn't want to put prayer and fasting on there because those are the simple ones. Like, oh yeah, I I know I'm supposed to do that more than I do now. And that's not a message I want you to hear this weekend, at least not a main message. I want you to hear that that I actually want to. Like if somebody came into your household, I bet that that many of you grew up in families where you did some distinctive things as families. Somebody else would walk in and have no idea what's going on there, or just like an alien lands on our planet and, and shows up here and it's somebody's birthday and we all sing happy birthday. If you don't know what that means, you can't participate in it simply by miming the actions outwardly. And so Christian practices are ways of participating in the story of Jesus, and that's what gives them value. So we will talk about that more tomorrow, but that's a great question. It, absolutely. It could sound like it's just another version of number three, be more radical. Great talk, right, Caleb? Oh, that was amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, this was really good, but really encourage you to listen to the rest of the talks, which kind of complete the picture that he started painting tonight. And the talk tonight will make a lot more sense in the context right. of the other three. Yeah. Yeah. I agree, Tommy. I agree. Okay. We hope you got something from this because I know it certainly did. And a lot of my friends did too. Like yeah. Tommy. 100%. Here we go. The disclaimer. I'm saying it now. That's right. This episode was brought to you by Christian Yant Penn. It was recorded, produced, and edited by Just Be Records. Special thanks, really, to Nick for being with us, even in recording. (laughs) There's really a lot of really wise words being said. Uh, The views of the speakers and the hosts are not necessarily reflective of Christian Union as a whole. Thank you for listening, and we really hope that you got the gospel from this episode today. Have a great day. We'll see you next time, everybody. (laughs) See you next time. That's right, Tom. (laughs) 